Hi everyone, I'm Nicolette and welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. We're so glad you're part of our church community. Today we continue our deep dive into the book of John with Pastor Jordan Taylor. His message is from John 1, 35 through 51. We can't be a witness until we personally bear witness in experiencing the deep work of God in our own lives. Once we've done that, we're able to best share Jesus with others. Have you fully tapped the surface of the wonders of Jesus, your Messiah? Are you ready to dive deeper into all that Jesus is and wants to do in your life? Today is just the beginning. If you'd like to watch more messages from this series in John, please visit our teaching page at cccm.com. Let's join Pastor Jordan now with his message titled, Being a Witness. As Pastor Brian read, uh, we're in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, and I am preaching on the last section in John, chapter 1. And as we've been saying throughout the Gospel of John, uh, the writer, the apostle, John, he wants to drill something into our mind. And he tells us why the Gospel of John is written. He says, I handpicked, I've curated these stories in order that you, the reader, us, the disciples, those whom John is writing to, in order that we would share in the life that is in Jesus' name. And if you haven't picked up on this already, let me remind you in John chapter 20, verse 31, this is our purpose statement, this is our uh, John's own sort of purpose statement of this book, he says there, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that when you believe or by believing, you may have life in his name. And hence the sort of point that we're drilling in on in this first section of John, that we would have life in his name. That John is inviting us to believe in and to center, or even if we're sort of off track, to recenter our lives around Jesus in order that we might experience true living, experience life in Jesus' name. Now, as I mentioned, we're finishing up chapter one and we're gonna be setting the table here. This is the sort of final place setting, if you will, before we feast on the signs and teachings of Jesus in chapters 2 through 12. So those are coming here in the weeks ahead. We're really excited about those. Uh, scholars call chapters 2 through 12 the book of signs. And this is the final little section before we launch into this book of signs. Now, this section, our section today, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, it's an important little section. And it highlights something important to the book of John, and it does so in sort of unique fashion with the calling, two stories of the calling of Jesus' disciples. And what it highlights here is what it means to be a witness, what it means to be a witness. And this word, this concept, are very important to the Gospel of John. I mean, just think of what I just mentioned about the book of signs that's coming in chapters 2 through 12, right? These are the book of signs as told by the witnesses of these signs, right? 
It is about witnesses of Jesus' miracles, witnesses of Jesus' words. In fact, what comes after this in chapters 2 through 12 could easily be called the book of witnesses of Jesus' signs. And this is because a witness is a vital experience and a vital role in the Christian life. Right? It's a vital experience and it's a vital role in the Christian life. And so John defines what a witness is many times throughout his book, but John the baptizer, right, uh, who is also a part of the story, he actually defines it pretty well for us right in the text in verse 34 before we come into our section. So look back one verse, John chapter 1, verse 34, and here John defines it, and he says this, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Right? So a witness is someone who both sees and testifies. They see the thing. They experience it. And then they give testimony about it. They tell about it. I mean, even our good friends, the local TSA agents know this, right? If you see something... Say something. The assumption is if you don't see something, you can't, <laughs> right? This, like we understand this idea. It's, it's sort of baked into our society. A witness must see an experience in order to testify or tell. There is an unbreakable bond between witnessing something in order to become or to be a witness, now, I've been traveling recently for work, and I haven't really been present for a few weeks. And so I felt like, as I was preparing for this message, I felt like I should just say, hello. <laughs> it's good to see you all. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. I, I feel like I might even need to, intro I was only gone three weeks, but I felt like, man, this has just been such a crazy couple of years since I've been here, so I'll introduce myself again. My name's Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I oversee operations here at the church. Um, my wife and our three daughters moved here two years ago after pastoring a small church in Seattle for 10 years, and I grew up as a pastor's kid, if you didn't know that about me, which means that I grew up going to church a lot. But as a kid, I never liked being up front. It wasn't something that, uh, that I particularly liked. In fact, I would wrestle with my faith, and I would wrestle very deeply, but I never wrestled as I sort of spoke from the front or as I had some kind of role of influence at the church. I would wrestle quietly, in private, knowing this, knowing that I had not yet experienced a deep work of Jesus in my life. I, even growing up in the church and having a faith or some kind of understanding of the faith, I had not yet witnessed or observed Jesus' work in my life. And it wasn't until the age of 20, after leaving my job, selling most of my stuff, and going to Bible school overseas, that I experienced the deep work of Jesus. 
And I can even remember the moment leaning back in a rickety wooden chair in a smelly dorm room for eight guys reading a dusty old Puritan writing about the new heart of Ezekiel 36, and Jesus just worked a new light right into my heart. And it was interesting. After I witnessed Jesus' work in my life, I became a witness. And my hope today is that you become witnesses too. Now, our story, as I mentioned, picks up with John the baptizer being a witness. That's verse 34, right? And 35 and moving forward. But I want to start a little bit before that because as Christians, I think it's important that we start with bearing witness, that we start with our experiencing the deep work of Jesus in our life. And this is important because We start here because it all begins with God revealing himself. That God reveals and is the first witness of himself and of his glory. And in fact, if you note this in the book of John, you'll see that Jesus bears witness to himself several times. And this is because God is the first witness. And he bears witness of his glory. And he is the one who sort of initiates our deep experience with Jesus. And so even though the story isn't told in our section here, we know that John the baptizer had that deep experience where Jesus worked deeply in his life. And now he is becoming a witness for his disciples, which is no coincidence because Many people throughout history, anyone really who experiences the deep work of Jesus does so because another human is a witness to them. And we'll talk about that in a second. But look at verse 35, and we're going to read a few of the verses here. And we're going to talk about the experiencing the deep work of Jesus in these first followers' lives. So verse 35, it says there, the next day... John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. We don't know why this struck these disciples, but you know, this is what they hear when the two disciples heard John say this. They followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus said to them, or Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus replies, come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him and it was about four in the afternoon. Now, two people, one whom we learn later is Andrew and one who is unnamed, they begin to follow Jesus and Jesus turns around and asks them, You know, what are they seeking? What are you seeking? And I like this question. It's a challenging question. It's a sobering question. It's a clarifying question. And I like how our translation puts it. What do you want? This is a good question. I feel like we could ask ourselves this question. Why do we follow Jesus? I've been following Jesus now 20 years. It's a good question. Why am I following Jesus? What am I looking for? What are we looking for? Now, 
I find that these followers' response is kind of peculiar. I don't know what you think of this, but let's continue. Their response sort of seems to capture the humanity of the moment. Maybe even they're surprised by Jesus' direct question of what do you want. But honestly, their response feels a little creepy (laughs) to me. They respond with, where are you staying? What do you want? Well, we want to follow you to your home, and we want to... See what you're doing there. <laughs> We've never met you before. I mean, it's, the text, it's an abbreviated story, but it's interesting, right? Like, it captures the humanity. It captures the surprise in the moment. And I would say, when we combine it with what Jesus says next, which is, come and see, what it begins to do is it begins to allude to something that's going to come in the chapters ahead, right? Because what's going to come in the chapters ahead is what it means to follow Jesus, right? Remember, the first aspect of being a witness is that you have to experience the thing. You can't be a witness until you've witnessed something. And so Jesus is simply saying, come, see, experience me. And in fact, this word staying in the disciples' response, where are you staying, is actually the same word that Jesus is going to use later in chapter 15, specifically when he talks about abiding. And so we could combine all of these things. Come, see, stay, or abide. This is how you experience the deep work of Jesus is that you come to him. You see what he is doing and you abide. You remain. You stay with him. Now John makes this note of this deep work that Jesus does in these first followers' life at the end of verse 39. He remarks that it was about four in the afternoon. In other words... These people met Jesus at four, spent the rest of the day with him, and never left. I mean, that's how deep of a work Jesus wrought in just a few short hours. And then furthermore, Andrew, the first thing that he does is witness to his family, which, as we know, being a witness to your family is no easy thing, right? Look at verse 41 and 42. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon's son of John, you will be called Kepha, which is translated Peter. I mean, talk about a deep experience with Jesus. Jesus knows Peter's future. You will be called. You will be this thing in the church. He doesn't tell us all the details right here, but we know because we read the story. This is just the beginning of Jesus' deep work. The witnessed two, right? John the Baptist witnessed to these two. They have now experienced Jesus, and it changes everything. Now, how did these 
to know that an afternoon with Jesus would change their lives. Did these two know that one decision to follow Jesus would continue to impact generations 2,000 years later? That we would be telling that story? See, experiencing the deep work of Jesus changes everything. And then the witnessed to becomes the witnesser, right? This is the cycle of witnessing, experiencing Jesus, leading to being a witness. It continues. Look, as we go on, John tells us that the next day, verse 43, the very next day, Jesus left for Galilee. And he lands in a little fishing village called Bethsaida, which literally means fishing village, just in case you're wondering. And it says there, an interesting little take, he says, there he found Philip. Right? There Jesus found Philip. Here Jesus is bearing witness of himself. He found Philip and he says to him, follow me. And it's interesting, it's a beautiful story because after Philip witnesses and experiences Jesus, Philip then immediately imitates Jesus and goes and finds Nathanael. Look at verse 45. Verse 45 says this, Philip found Nathanael, again imitating Jesus because this is what followers of Jesus do, they imitate him. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, we're not told in the story what Jesus and Philip talked about or what Philip saw in order to make him conclude that Jesus was the one Moses wrote about, which is probably a reference to the capital P prophet of Deuteronomy. Or that Philip would conclude that this is whom the prophets also wrote, probably focusing on the Messiah or the anointed one of the prophet Isaiah in particular. But Philip is a witness to Nathaniel with these conclusions. We have found this one. Jesus changed everything about Philip's life, and he was concluding these things. But I love this telling of this story because note Nathaniel's response. Look at verse 46. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. And notice Philip's imitating Jesus again. Come and see, said Philip. What a, a beautiful invitation, but it's worth mentioning that it starts with some skepticism. Right? We don't know Nathaniel. We know that Nathaniel lived nearby Nazareth in a neighboring village. So maybe there is a little bit of like, uh, I don't know, village jealousy with one another. I don't know what Orange County's sort of version of that, you know, maybe be like the Inland Empire or something like that. What good could come from the IE? I don't know if, you know, it's sort of neighboring. Yeah, some of us drove from there. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> L.A. County, right? What good could come from? Um, we don't know if it's, it's something like that. But what we do know is that Nathaniel was skeptical. And I love what Leslie Newbegin says about this. He says this, 
Skepticism is a legitimate starting point, but it cannot have the last word. You know? Philip's witness for Nathaniel to come and see, and again, it mirrors Jesus' own language, it persuades Nathaniel to come and to see for himself. And this is beautiful because throughout the story, throughout the Gospel of John, there are many skeptics. There are many skeptics in the crowd when Jesus would teach. And perhaps I would even venture a guess that there are skeptics here at the church today. In fact, if we were to look at the most famous skeptic in the book of John, we would find the disciple Thomas. Right? We can think about that story in John chapter 20. And even there, after Thomas had seen everything that Jesus had done, had seen all of the signs, Thomas exclaims, I will not believe until I see. And what does Jesus say? See my hands and believe. See, this book It's not just a simplistic, hey, you witness this, then you say that. No, there is a a wrestling going on here with these disciples. Come, see, stay with Jesus. And we see as Nathaniel comes into Jesus' view, Jesus exclaims, behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I love Nathaniel's response is kind of obvious, and one actually that I would think that Peter would have drawn as well. In fact, any of us probably would have drawn this same conclusion when Nathaniel says in verse 48, how do you know me? How do you know me, Jesus? And it seems like there's some depth to this, right? And many people point out that when Jesus exclaims that, you know, behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. There's an allusion to Psalm 32. And many people speculate that this could have been like a life verse or a life psalm of Nathaniel, where he follows Psalm 32 as sort of a pattern of life. And so it's almost as if Nathaniel could be saying, how do you know that I try to live by David's prayer in Psalm 32? And Jesus says, I saw you. I saw you when you were under the fig tree, studying and dreaming about what type of peace and plenty the Messiah will bring, for I am he. Now, that's my retelling of the situation, right? Likely, you know, Nathaniel is reading the Psalms, perhaps Psalm 32, maybe even Psalm 2, which references the Messiah, and Jesus sees that. Now, Nathaniel's whole experience with this, he exclaims, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. All that I have studied of Scripture points to you. I was just reading in Psalm 2. This is sort of me imagining what Nathaniel could have said. And I read about how the King of Israel is the Son of God, and you are that Son in whom we have all been looking for. I mean, this could be this experience. But this experience with Jesus, it changes everything. Whatever Jesus said and however Jesus said it, 
it caused Nathaniel to recenter, to recalibrate his entire life around Jesus. And then the person who witnessed Jesus becomes a witness of Jesus. Right? And how could they do anything else but be a witness? But I think it's important that we point out that those witnessing do have a responsibility to be a witness. That's part of the deal. Right? Again, I'm not saying that you speak about something that you haven't seen. No, a witness can only speak about what he or she has seen. And that's the story here. Philip, Andrew, Nathaniel, even in my own case, you don't speak about what you haven't seen. You speak about how God has been faithful to you. You bear witness of the thing that you've witnessed in your life. But as we bear witness, as we witness to others, we use our voice. And we use it to speak about how Jesus is the word. Right? We bring people to Jesus, right? This is it. It's not a high-pressure sales situation that you got to close the deal on. You bring people to Jesus. Now, I want to point out, and I think it's worth pointing out, that I do think witnesses have a responsibility for understanding what they're communicating or understanding what's going on. And again, I want to point out that this isn't necessarily an, always an easy situation. As we'll see throughout the Gospel of John, the disciples and those witnessing Jesus' words and works struggled at times, but they always advocated for a deeper understanding. Now, as I say, a witness has to understand what they are communicating and what they saw. I also want to add that witnesses cannot control if a person accepts. You can't control that. In fact, one of the major themes in John, something that I found to be quite surprising, is that many people actually reject Jesus' witness of himself, the signs themselves, right to his face. You can't control that. You being the best witness doesn't mean someone will accept your testimony. But what we do do is that we join with actually a historical cloud of witnesses who have constantly borne witness of what God is doing in our world. I mean, think even in this church gathering. Those of us gathered here, we are likely a group of people who have witnessed and experienced the deep work of Jesus in our life, right? And we've come here. And who am I? I'm just one of the witnesses, and I have now got up on this platform to bear witness, to say, this is what God has done. This is how he has been faithful. And guess what? Then I'm going to rejoin the cloud of witnesses, past, present, and hopefully, as God continues to work, future. We have a responsibility to do this. But, you know, John begins in a pretty unique way. 
he begins with all kinds of exclamations about Jesus, bearing witness to Jesus. But what happens when what you have concluded, it doesn't go deep enough? You know, why so much bearing witness in chapter 1 when chapters 2 through 12 are actually going to be filled with a bit of struggle? Well, this is essentially the direction Jesus takes us as he concludes this chapter. Look at verses 50 and 51 of chapter 1. There it says, Jesus said, this is to Nathaniel, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, you will see greater things than that. And Jesus then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now this is interesting because, you know, there's actually 15 different, at least 15 different titles given to Jesus in John chapter 1 alone. Right? And seven different titles given in our little section in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51 here. Now, that's a lot. Right? Like, why so many titles? And they're all worth looking at, but I want to point them out and maybe refresh some of our memory. You remember Jesus is called the Word. Jesus is called the Life. Jesus is called the Light. Jesus is called the one and only Son. He's called God, Christ, Lamb of God, Son of God, Jesus, Rabbi, Messiah, Prophet, Son of Joseph, King of Israel, and Son of Man, all in the short span of 51 verses. There's really no other section of Scripture that contains so many different titles for Jesus in such a condensed period of time. And... All of these, it would be interesting, right, to do a deep dive on all of these, and I would love to take you on that journey, but not today. The question I want to ask is, why so many? Now, Jesus certainly fulfills all of these titles. But the pressing question is, and this is one that's been asked throughout time, is do you think Nathaniel actually knows what he's saying when he exclaims who Jesus is at this point? That's the question. It comes right at the beginning. How could he know? Or perhaps looking back in uh, verse 35 and 36, when John exclaims, the Lamb of God, like if somebody said that to you, would you be like, oh yeah, I know what that means, and you just change your entire life? No, there's something deeper going on here. Do we, the readers, do we even know what all of these titles mean? And what happens if when challenged by life circumstances, what happens if we actually are not the witnesses we think we are? In other words, I could say it this way. What if we say Jesus is the life? For example, look at verse 4. You see Jesus is called the life there. And we conclude, as disciples and followers have concluded for centuries, yes, Jesus is the life, but we do not bear witness to what it means to live as if Jesus is our life. What if we, like Philip, 
after so much time, Philip, whose story is right here, what if we, like Philip, after so much time of being with Jesus, we incorrectly say, as he does in chapter 14, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. In other words, Philip is saying here, I don't think that you are fully God. I just need to see God. I don't understand necessarily what I'm exclaiming in chapter 1. And after all this time, this is why Jesus replies this way. Don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In other words, don't you understand that I am God and that I, as God, am with you? And so God, who is Father as well, is with you too? I think it's is very important and, and, and a challenge for us at these early verses because what we see here is that it is not only a doctrinal issue. Like they said the right words about Jesus. Yes, you're the Messiah. You are the King of Israel. You are the Son of God. They said the right words, but they didn't understand their full meaning. And this is why Jesus says later, at the end of verse 51, he says, or excuse me, at the end of verse 50, he says, you will see greater things. You see, this isn't just a doctrinal issue. This is an experiential issue. And what exactly will Jesus' followers see? Again, verse 51, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I think all of us in the room are like, whoa, what's, what is this? Angels descending and ascending? Well, if you uh, take note or if you're, you have a little study Bible, it probably points you back to the fact that when Jesus says these words in verse 51, he is pointing uh, Nathaniel and us, the readers, back to Genesis 28. And this is in reference to the Old Testament father of the faith, Jacob, and his dream. And you can read about this. I encourage you to do so in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. But let me summarize for you. In Genesis, Jacob dreams an extremely tall staircase going up something like a pyramid is connecting heaven to earth. But what he sees up there is not, you know, peering into heaven where the, the veil is pierced and he sees, oh, this is what's going on in heaven. No, rather what he sees is that God is coming down to earth to be with Jacob. This is what he sees, and this is why he concludes, God is here. God is with me. And so Jesus, and as John tells us here, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and to all of us, Jesus is descending to earth to be with us, and he also is the stairway and the path between heaven and earth. In other words, 
you conclude rightly that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of Man, that I am all of these titles. You conclude rightly, but you don't even know the full extent of what I'm going to do on this earth. In other words, it's just beginning. Hold on tight, because I am going to work in your life like you've never seen before. In other words, this is just the beginning. Now, are you ready to see some of Jesus' signs? Yes? Okay, all right, just checking. (laughs) This is what we're going to be studying in chapters 2 through 12. Are you ready to see Jesus' great works? Are you ready to be encouraged and challenged by Jesus' teachings for us? Yes, okay, all right, good. But as we conclude here today, I want to ask us, uh, you know, a couple takeaway points. And I want to ask us, you know, what are the greater things for us? You know, there are many here who have borne witness of Jesus' work in their life, perhaps in their children's lives, perhaps in their grandchildren's lives, perhaps, you know, through missions, through all these different things, you know, but Jesus still wants to work in our lives. What are some of the greater things? You know, some of the greater things that I think about are perhaps the greatest work, which is, to me, a miracle every time it's exercised of forgiveness. I have seen people changed families healed, relationships brought back together through forgiveness. That is the work, the deep work of Jesus changing. Perhaps it's the deep work of restoration or reconciliation. You know, as you come through these doors and you gather with this cloud of witnesses here, we together want to point one another to the great work that Jesus wants to do in our lives. And I think it's true that some of us here have not yet witnessed or experienced Jesus' work in our lives. You come, that you've come here maybe with a family member or a friend, and you want to believe that It's real that Jesus is risen from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand and that he is making all things new. You want to believe that, but you haven't yet experienced it. Well, the invitation will be given to come to see and to stay with Jesus. Get ready to experience him. Now, it's, and it's not just those of us who have not yet experienced Jesus. There are many, and I myself at different periods in my life, even after walking with Jesus 20 years, have these moments where I need to re-experience or again witness the great work of Jesus in my life. That I'm worn down or discouraged or simply struggling. And I cry out, as I do many times, Lord Jesus, would you work yet again in a fresh way? And Jesus' words are similar. Come, see, abide with me. 
Now, shortly after my experience with Jesus, those many years ago now, I came home. I was driving in the car. Actually, I was in here in Southern California with my dad, and my uncle was in the car also, and my uncle is also a pastor, and he's very direct. And he said to me, I heard you became a Christian. And it's true. Like in that moment, I, I was thinking, I, yeah, it's true. I, I have been wrestling with my faith for many years. And truly, I still do wrestle. But what he was saying there and what is true is that when you witness the work of Jesus in your life, everything's different. Everything's changed. And like Nathaniel here, and like disciples throughout history, I've now come to know that day when I experienced Jesus' work in my life, it was just the beginning. I had no idea the works, the teachings the things that Jesus wanted to do in my life. And I just want to join with all of you and the cloud of witnesses before, who came before me and say, it doesn't even compare to life without Jesus. Nothing compares. So as we conclude here today, we're going to conclude with communion. And I just think this is the best. Because we get to come forward or go to the back or if you're not able to come to the table, just stick up your hand and one of the ushers is going to come and bring you uh, the communion elements so that you can partake of the table together. But we get to come forward and we get to experience Jesus. We get to come and to see and to abide in Jesus and we do this together. And so if I could give you any direction as you're coming forward, as uh, you're going to receive these emblems and you're going to go back to your seat and you're going to partake of those either by yourself or with the people around you or however the Lord leads you there, I would encourage you to come into Jesus' presence, to commit your life where you are at, whatever it is. Maybe you are a skeptic or maybe you are a longtime follower of Jesus who is nourishing yourself yet again on the work that you know so well of Jesus, but to come into his presence, to remember his works, to abide so that you may have life in his name. I want to conclude with a couple scriptures from John chapter 6 as we prepare ourselves for communion. There Jesus says, Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So let's remember, let's eat, let's drink, and abide so that we have life in his name.